The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation I feel like a broken record. Every time I host this show, I'm commenting on, I can't believe it's January already. And right now, I can't believe it is almost Memorial Day weekend. Uh, I'm really not sure how that happened, but that is the story of my life these days. Um, For those of you with kids who are going to be going to college, you might be wondering, should I bother to save for college? Um, You may have thought, oh, I'll start saving when they're born, and then suddenly you wake up and they are in sixth grade and you haven't. Um, So one of my colleagues is going to join us today. We're going to talk a little bit about whether or not it is smart to save for college. Uh, We're also going to be talking about some of the challenges that are faced by first-generation students who are applying to college. Um, So students whose parents did not go to college, uh, they are it's a little bit of a unique group. So if we have any listeners in the audience, um, we're going to be addressing some of those challenges that you face. But before we get to that, we've been doing a series uh, taking you inside the admissions offices of some of the schools where uh, we used to work. And today we have another one in that series, my colleague, Emily Toffelmeyer, who was an admissions officer at the University of Southern California for a number of years, is here. And she's going to help us understand how their process works. Uh, welcome, Emily. Hi, Beth. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Well, thanks for joining us because, um, as is often the case, you know, we think we know a lot about how something works, and then um, we learn via an email exchange like we had in um, amongst ourselves this past week here at College Coach and learned um, some stuff, some insight into the USC process that we didn't know before. And so we're going to share some of that with our listeners, and hopefully they will find that helpful. Um, So I guess my first question for you is really, um, you know, the process works differently at so many different schools in terms of, you know, from the time the student submits their application until they get a decision. So can you walk us through a little bit, you know, who reads the applications, how you make the decisions, is that in a committee or are there a few readers kind of signing off? We'd love to get some insight into how the process works at USC. Sure, and I'll, I'll try to not make this too long because there are a lot of different pathways your application can take at USC. Um, but before I even say that, I'll mention I love that we do these series, but to any students or parents out there, if you're curious how a certain university's admission office works, you can usually ask an admission officer at that university. Um, you know, there might be some things that they would rather not get into too much detail about, but everybody's pretty transparent about 
the pathway that your application takes. So don't be afraid to ask that question if you're on a campus visit or in an information session. We're always happy to answer that question at USC. Um, and the, the way your application starts there is with the territory manager. So that's the person in the admission office who's assigned to your geographic region. When I was at USC for the first few years, I was reviewing mostly applications from the state of Washington. So I would visit high schools there, go to college fairs, um, interview students there. Um, so that territory manager is really the gatekeeper and the first reader for applications from your school and your region. And the first read is very thorough. It's a GPA calculation and really copious notes about every aspect of your application. So your academics, um, the rigor that you took advantage of in the context of your school, your test scores, the qualitative side of your application, like your essays, your activities, your letters of recommendation. So the notes were very thorough because as your first reader, when your application came back to me after additional review, I wasn't going to have time to look over your entire application again. Instead, I just wanted to have notes to rely on to jog my memory about how I felt about your application. Um, so after that, you typically will go on to multiple other readers. Depending on your application and your major, you'll be read anywhere from, I would say, a minimum of at least two times to as many as five times, depending on what wow. department you've applied to. Um, yeah, and, and like that will depend a lot on the major. For example, if you were applying as something in the liberal arts or business or engineering, you really are going to have probably just like three or four reads within the admission office, but a very different story if you are applying to something like music, performing arts, dance, anything that is a talent major, that's going to go through a slightly different pipeline where you start off with the main admission office and then you get shipped over electronically a paper <laughs> shuffling happening at USC. You get shipped over to your talent department where the experts in architecture and acting and cinema and dance are going to do their own review of your application, focusing on the talent part of your app. Um, and then eventually when it's time for the final decision, that will come back into the hands of the territory manager who typically will go ahead and enter the final decision, but it's not their sole decision to make. There's never an application that's decided on by just one person because that wouldn't really be fair. There would be too many biases and personal preferences and favorites at play. So even though you might have your favorites in your pool, you are checked by other people in your office who read for different territories, who have different backgrounds than you and different preferences. So all those opinions come together to weigh in on the final decision. Um, but there's not really an actual committee at USC. With the volume of applications, I think it would be physically impossible for a committee to deliberate over every single applicant. Got it. So I'm, I'm intrigued. When the, when the file comes back to you, let's say it's been to four other people, have they all put down what they think should be done? So, you know, leaning towards an admit, or I think this is an admit, or I think this is a deny, and then you're sort of looking at everything and saying, okay, uh, I think more people want to admit than deny, so we're going to admit, or is it a little more scientific? Um, you know, there, there are parts of the process that do feel a little scientific. You, you do, I think every university wants to try to be consistent. So there is some quantifiable numbers that are assigned to students and kind of categories that are used um, that I've honestly forgotten at this point, so I won't get into those. And that's probably part of the process. It's a little more specific and maybe secret to USC. Um, so there is a quantifiable part of the review, which might be comforting to parents and students who like data and numbers. But at the end of the day, I think it really is a decision being made by human beings. Um, so what you'll do is you'll have your very thorough notes kind of at the top of the file. And as you scroll down, you'll see the notes from, you know, two or three of your colleagues who also gave it a review. And sometimes the notes will be as simple as, 
I'm completely on the same page as Emily, feeling the same way, great student, um, and others might weigh in with a recommendation to admit or deny. Um, and I know in some previous segments when we've talked about certain schools and the language has come up, like lean, deny, lean, admit. Um, mm-hmm. And so USC does have some categories like that about admission for fall, admission for spring, deny. Um, and the, there's the kind of ambiguous, I'm not really sure category where <laughs> you kind of go either, you can really go anyway with a student. Um, mm-hmm. And so based on the category that you are leaning towards for that student, that can sometimes sway the other readers. If somebody knows that you really love a student, they want to kind of support you and get behind you and see what you see in the student. But at the same time, everybody's going to be pretty honest and critical with the different applicants, just when you're at a school that's gotten down to a 16% admission rate, you do have mm-hmm. to look at everybody with a fairly critical eye, unfortunately. Got it. Got it. Okay. So that's super helpful. And I do think you make a very important point. At the end of the day, there are quantifiable pieces, but the decisions are being made by people. Um, I know that mm-hmm. people get excited about the quantifiable stuff, ex- unless their kid or unless they, as an applicant, aren't quite stacking up on the quantifiable stuff, <laughs> yeah. and then they really love the human element of it. It's mm-hmm. not perfect. Um, I think if you talk to people from other countries where you know, China comes to mind where it is purely based. Admissions is you take a test based on how you score on that test. You are either admitted or you are not admitted. It's clean, but as we all know, not everyone tests well, and it's a Mm -hmm. lot to ride on one thing. So I think there are pluses and minuses to every system. This is the one we have here in the U.S., I happen to like it, or I probably wouldn't have worked in this this field. so just in terms of, that was, I think, super insightful. In terms of general expectations, um, do you have any guidelines that you could offer to parents and students around grades, rigor of curriculum, and test scores? Sure. So USC, there is there's not a chart or a graph that is used. Um, and that's, that's the type of idea or rumor that I'm sure shows up on certain um, online message boards. I won't name any names. Um, but there's no chart or graph that you are placed on at USC for admission consideration. Maybe that was the case in the past, but no more, um, and not for many, many years. Um, so I think that what I do like about the way that USC reports data is that they're really big on talking about middle 50%, so the range of averages for admitted students in the middle 50%. I think that's a lot more helpful than saying an average overall. I think it encourages students who maybe aren't the best test takers who have a couple of flaws on their transcript to understand this isn't about being perfect, um, and there's a range of types of students admitted and levels of success. So, but if you if you want to take a look, USC always publishes the freshman profile. So the one for the coming year has not been published yet. I'm sure they're still kind of figuring out all the numbers at this point. But the one for the 2016-2017 year is available online. And um, just for general information, the middle 50% of the SAT. Um, if you're looking just at the critical reading and math, because this was based on the old SAT, the middle 50% range of admitted students was between a 1330 and a 1530. The ACT middle 50% was a 31 to 34. And the average unweighted, or the, the middle, sorry, middle 50% of GPA was between a 3.7 and a 4.0. Got it. So I like All the middle right. 50% so- because it's encouraging for students who might be below that because you can remind them, okay, the middle 50% is 31 to 34, but that means there's 25% of students admitted who were under a 31. Right. Which is yeah, true, but I, I also think people, it isn't purely quantitative. I do think it's important to note that 
the likelihood that you might be in that lower 25% is probably, you know, it, your chances still aren't great if you're not at least in the middle 50%. Um, but there is a chance, right? But it's it's less likely that that's going to happen. And there was probably something really compelling. There's probably something really compelling on your application, right? If you're mm-hmm. in that bottom 25% and you were still admitted to USC, there's probably something really interesting going on in your application, like maybe your artistic mm-hmm. talent and athletic ability, um, some uh, background that you're bringing to the university that we didn't often see. So there was something pretty special going on in your application qualitatively if you're able to get in with a score lower than that. Right, exactly. And so if a lot of pieces of your application are sort of just okay or a bit lower, that's when you really do have to start to say, ah, this is probably unlikely. Um, Mm-hmm. Anything particularly important in the application that you encourage students to pay close attention to? Yeah, it's one of the things that came up in that email exchange you, you mentioned earlier between mm-hmm. us between our colleagues this week. Um, the why USC question is important. And if you're not familiar with the USC application, they use the Common App. And one of the supplemental questions is similar to a supplement you'll see for a lot of universities. And it's just where you talk about USC. Like, why are you applying here? Why are we a fit? What do you want to study here? And that was important for us, especially when we made the switch from the USC-specific application to the common application. That really drove up the applicant numbers. It drove down the admission rate. Um, But it also meant that we had a lot of applicants who maybe weren't really that interested in USC and just sort of checked off the box and did a little bit of extra work. And the laziness with the YUSC question could be pretty revealing. Um, If it was Mm -hmm. a generic answer where you could have copied and pasted USC's name into it and copied and pasted Princeton's name into it, and there would have been no difference. And that told us that maybe you really hadn't spent much time researching USC. Um, so it, it doesn't, it's not that hard to write a good why X university question. You need to do research on what you want to study, what fits you at the university, get specific about maybe courses you want to take or things you want to take advantage of on the campus. And if you're not willing to put in just that 20 minutes of time to do that, kind of sends a signal to your territory manager that maybe USC was an afterthought for you. Um, and I right. think fit in general is a good idea, whether it comes to major or the school. You know, USC is big. It's spirited. It's maybe not the best place for a wallflower or a very shy student. So if that comes across in your application, we may be concerned about your happiness that you would have on campus. Um, if you choose a major that you have no preparation for and have never expressed any interest in, that might seem a little unusual for us. We might wonder if you were honest in your major choice. So mm-hmm. I think the consistency and the demonstrated um, research in USC that you've looked into the fit and you know why USC is a good place for you, if you can get that across to us, it can help your application. Got it. Awesome. Uh, that, and that actually leads me to one other thing that started the whole back and forth um, here at College Coach, which was the question of demonstrated interest, whether or not USC is tracking it, and therefore if it's extra important to visit. Um, USC does not track interest, which might be surprising to some people. Um, And maybe before my time there, maybe they did track interest. But uh, when I was there, and still to this day, they do not track it. Now, there is a history kept of your interaction with the university that your territory manager or any app reviewer can see. So that would be a list of your interactions, like um, checking in at a college fair, doing a tour, information session, meeting your rep at your high school when they come to visit and talk about USC. So we can see that you've had interaction, but it is not part of the review process. It doesn't put any weight on your application. Um, so you, you're not penalized if you don't visit USC. And we do that because it's not easy for everybody to get all the way out to California. Um, right. However, 
even though it's not an official part of the review, I will say that in my later years at USC, when I was involved in the merit scholarship coordination and the decisions and interviews, that sometimes if a student was from you know, five miles away but had never once bothered to visit USC, that seemed a little strange to us. Like maybe USC wasn't really a top pick for you if you could have easily over the last you know, 10 years have come to visit us and you never bothered to. So I think that occasionally, informally, we would glance at the interactions, and if there seemed to be no demonstrated interest on your part, we kind of wondered if you were really worth us investing a full tuition scholarship in. Got it. So if you want money, it might make sense to go if you can. <laughs> All right, very quickly, because yeah. we only have a few seconds. Um, is it true, um, and I ask this for our California listeners, but um, we hear a lot about how challenging it is to get in, particularly from Southern California, where USC is located. Is it true that it is hardest to get in from that area? No, it is not. Um, Southern California is still one of the most represented populations at USC. Um, at this point, the admitted class is typically about 40% Californians, and mm-hmm. about, I would say, 25% of that 40% is from Southern California. And if you go and search for that USC freshman profile I mentioned, you'll be able to see uh, they include the most represented public schools and private schools. Five of the six public schools are located in Southern California, and I think like three of the private schools are Southern California schools. So clearly, plenty of California kids and kids from LA getting admitted every year. Awesome. Emily, thank you so much for joining today. I really appreciate it. Of course. You're welcome. All right. Well, when we come back, we're going to be talking about the challenges that first-generation college students are facing in the process. So don't go away. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. 
To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Great. Well, we're back. And my colleague, Lisa Albro, who happens to be a first-generation college student herself, um, is here to discuss with us the challenges that these students can face in the college process. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Beth. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. And thanks so much for joining us. Um, So, we are going to be talking about the challenges, but I thought it might be kind of interesting for any of our listeners who are first generation um, or whose children will be first generation college students to hear a little bit about um, some advantages that might be involved in being first gen. So from your perspective, do you think there are any advantages um, of being first gen? Oh, you bet. I, I think there are advantages to almost any situation, but in, in this case, sure. Uh, first of all, no preconceived notions. Right, or maybe there mm-hmm. are some, but if you haven't had an older adult in your family in your life go to college, telling you this and telling you that this is what you should expect, this is what will happen. Oh, you know, trying to relive their their glory days mm-hmm. of college, perhaps uh, you you go in kind of with a, a fresh perspective. So that's one. But even before that, even before starting college, uh, very many you know colleges want to see students from diverse backgrounds. They're interested in, in the story that students have to tell about themselves. And when they're looking at essays from students that they know are clearly first-gen, sometimes those stories that those students may tell can be really intriguing to colleges. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And and they want, I mean, I know at Penn, we always used to highlight the percentage of our population who was admitted who were first generation. I mean, that was something that was important to a lot of people on campus is knowing that we were giving a shot to students who were not coming from college backgrounds um, with their parents. So that is right. That is right. In particular, when they're looking at a really strong student, when they're saying, wow, great academic preparation, they've done so well, and, and they didn't have anyone in their family kind of calling the shots for them. So there's Mm -hmm. sort of this, I guess, assumption maybe of higher level of independence and responsibility that that student might have taken for him or herself. Yep. Right. Got it. Yeah. I mean, I think those are all valid. So for those first gens out there, um, these are some of the important advantages that you have. And, you know, I've talked to some first-generation students who were questioning, you know, well, what do I put for that, and is it going to be held against me that my mom and dad didn't go to college, and my attitude is always, actually, that's going to be significantly in your favor, because it will be noticed, Um, and I always noted that on an applicant's file, that they were first-gen, and it was something that would come up in our committee discussions at Penn, so there are some some positives, Um, but... Today, we're really talking more about challenges. And so, what are some of the challenges that you see first-generation students facing um, in the admissions process? Mm-hmm. Yep. Great question. I think, first of all, a lot of students maybe aren't aiming high enough, or maybe they're not being encouraged to aim high enough, perhaps by parents, but also maybe by guidance counselors or people in school. Uh, there might just be an assumption made uh, from home or from school that this is, this is all they can do, quote-unquote, and they might mm-hmm. not be pushed to challenge themselves a little bit more in the process to maybe reach a little higher and apply to more selective colleges. Got it. For some students, right? Sure. Uh, yeah. But 
there might be some students who are first gen who might make the wrong assumption about their viability at a higher level college. They may just think, oh, I, yeah, I want to go to Princeton. I'll apply to Princeton. No big deal. Not knowing the preparation they might need to have that application stand out. Right. You know, right. academic so preparation. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Got it. So that, um, that can be a challenge. So, so first challenge really is applying to the right level of school, not aiming high enough or aiming too high with no real understanding of what it actually takes um, mm-hmm. to get there. And I would say, yeah, I've seen both sides of that. What are some other things that you've noticed that some first-gen students um, kind of struggle with a bit? I think a lot of my first-gen students, and I, I can even say this from people I've known in my own life that I didn't work with professionally, just friends and, and you know, people I grew up with, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a comfortable factor, a factor of comfortability, I guess you could say. Uh, a lot of kids don't want to go out of their comfort zone. If what they know is, is what's around them uh, and parents haven't really left their home base, uh, they may be a little bit reluctant to apply too far away. Maybe they're just saying, okay, there's a... a community college down the road, I'll, I'll just go there. Or mm-hmm. uh, maybe they don't think beyond that. Not that there's anything wrong with community college. It's a great place to start, but they may not be thinking beyond that. And, uh, you know, they, they don't always know what's out there. They may not be encouraged uh, to use resources or even know what the resources are to find out what kinds of schools might fit them. Uh, it may not even be a, a, a consideration for them to look at fit. They might just think, okay, well, that's what's nearby. That's what I'll do. Right, right. I'm curious in your own personal experience, um, if your parents were actively involved in your college process and search or if you, it was sort of your call and you're the one who was really pushing for the opportunity to go to college. Mm-hmm. No, they were, they were involved in that. They said, they wanted me to go to college. They encouraged it. They just didn't really know how to guide me there. So mm-hmm. my mom actually had the best advice, probably, and she said, you know, go see your guidance counselor. Go see him and tell him you need something. And he was a really caring guidance counselor. He just wasn't a really proactive guidance counselor. So if I didn't go see him and ask him questions constantly, I mm-hmm. wasn't going to find out anything more. So luckily, I had a parent who encouraged me to do that, and I had a counselor who was responsive when I did ask those questions. Um, right. But it was a different time too, Beth. I mean, I applied to college 30 years ago. So, right. You know, right. We, didn't have, we didn't have the information coming at us like kids do now. Uh, I think students now have information a little bit more at their fingertips than, than we all did in our generation. But it still was kind of limited unless you asked that next question or, or went that next step on your own to seek out the information. So it did have right. an encouragement. My parents did come on college tours with me. Um, they, they were definitely feeling like fish out of water, uh, but very interested in the process and, and supportive of me throughout it. So I was lucky there where I know some first-gen kids who don't have that. And I worked yeah. with a few who, who didn't have that. They were really completely on their own. Um, when it came to applications, though, they were hands-off. They said, look, we, have, we don't know what you're doing here. Just, you know, we'll, we'll write the checks and, and send your application fees, but that's all your job. We, we don't know what to tell you here. Right, right, right. But, then, yep. you know, going back to what you were saying, when you have the students where they don't have that support, um, my husband is a first-generation college student, and his 
parents were not only um, had they never gone to college, they didn't see the value in college. They thought he was trying to avoid going to work. So they were completely not on board with the idea. They weren't on board with paying for it. Um, And so he truly pursued his college ambitions um, solely on his own um, kind of ambition and, and, um, on his own dime as well, which was a little easier, um, you know, uh, 25 years ago, but is still was still quite challenging and difficult. So I do think that's another big thing that some first generation students can face. And I know you've seen it as well, right? The, the parents. Oh, you bet. You bet. Even uh, my husband works in a community who's school superintendent in a community where there are a lot of immigrant families and very hardworking immigrant families uh, who really don't all see the value in college. They see the value in work and earning a living. And Mm -hmm. it's kind of a battle for a lot of his students with their parents right now to, you know, get them to agree that college is is a good thing. It's an investment and they should be investing in an education, not just going right to work. And many of these students do part-time, college part-time mm-hmm. and work alongside it to, you know, continue to earn money, but also get their degree. Uh, but it is a real battle for a lot of them. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that was probably, you know, for those parents who are listening now, of course, their kids aren't going to have that challenge because they're invested enough to listen to our podcast. But I know we may have some listeners who's, who are the ones who are going to be applying. And, um, and we recognize that's, that's a tough one. Um, what advice do you have for first-gen students and their parents as they get started in the college process? Mm-hmm. Well, look for information, uh, reputable information. Certainly listening to this podcast is a great start and being part of this listening family to all of our broadcasts, I think really does help arm you with a lot of information just about the process and not just applying, but getting aid and all of that. Uh, but collegeboard.com, which we know institutes the SAT, uh, great search engine and a lot of resources there. There's actually kind of a neat uh, resource I found called I'm First. I was digging and, and asking lots of questions, and there's a, a group called the Center for Student Opportunity. It's based out of Maryland, and there's a program called I'm First. Uh, info at imfirst.org is where to look for information. It's really for first-generation college students, which, by the way, is really broadly defined. It's not just, you know, a student who, who's first in their family to go to college. It might be first in America to go to college. Maybe parents mm-hmm. were educated, but abroad. Uh, or maybe one parent has some college, or, or both parents have some, but didn't graduate. So it's, it's a really broadly defined term. Uh, but this program really helps those students to come find the resources they need. Uh, there's some mentorship involved. I was actually looking into some of the mentoring possibilities, and it sounded like something I might be interested in getting into in some of some of our colleagues might too, to mentor mm-hmm. students who are first generation as well. No, absolutely. And I think your advice around, you know, going to your guidance counselor and simply sometimes letting them know, hey, I'm college bound. Um, sometimes in a bigger school where the guidance counselors are stretched um, really thin, um, they may not realize that that's one of your ambitions. And, um, mm-hmm. 
letting the counselor know that that's, you know, ideally as early as possible, ideally when you land in high school, right? Just a quick meeting and popping your head in to say, hey, by the way, I plan to go to college in four years. So, you know, when when we're thinking about my coursework, can we do with that, with an eye towards that? Um, Or if you have never met that person, setting up an appointment to meet with that person now and letting them know, because to your point, you might have to be a little pushy to get Mm -hmm. more attention. But if you are a little pushy, they can guide you to other resources. So some of the ones that you've just mentioned, but then probably there are often community organizations that are out there trying to help these students and your guidance counselor may at least be able to put you in touch with them, even if your guidance counselor doesn't have the bandwidth to give you a lot of help along the way. That is correct. There are also some programs that are campus-based, higher higher education assistance programs uh, at most uh, public colleges are ways for students who are first-gen, but also who have some income barriers to get some support, uh, you know, both financially but also academically. In many cases, they might have a summer start that students need to commit to. Maybe it's a five- or six-week summer program prior to starting their freshman year. Uh, and so they have to apply for this as they're going through. And hopefully that's something they start to ask their counselors about, though, too. Is there an educational assistance program I might be looking at? Um, there's, there's a program called Posse out there. I used to work with a lot of students who applied for Posse scholarships where basically they're funding the, the four-year experience and they're making sure that students are mentored through their college experience. It's only through participating campuses, uh, but students who are first-gen are eligible to apply for these things. Excellent. So, Lisa, we, you're going to come back and um, at a, on another show and talk a little bit about what challenges first-gen students face when they actually arrive on college campuses. Um, anything else you'd share about the challenges leading up to that point um, before we wrap today? I, I don't know so much about the challenges as just a, a, a word of caution. You know, don't, don't limit yourself. You know, parents and students both. Uh, it, it seems really scary and, and kind of this amorphous thing. What is college? But if you just kind of allow yourself to investigate, ask questions of the right people, counselors, of course, uh, maybe others that you find who've been through the process. You know, a lot of kids have older friends who've gone through the process, maybe. Uh, the more people you ask, the more information you'll find out. But check your sources <laughs> because yep. there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot of inf- misinformation out there too. Uh, but, but don't, don't let the fear of the unknown limit you. I think that's the biggest piece of advice because I think a lot of students do hold themselves back because it just seems too scary. Right. And Great advice. a lot of potential. <laughs> Well, Lisa, thanks so much for joining us today. I think that's some great advice and some really good um, resources. And I look forward to having you back. And we'll talk about the part where you land on campus and what to be um, thinking about in those first few years. So thank you. Okay. Thank you. All right. All right. We're going to return in a minute with information about whether or not you should save for college. So don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining us today on Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm excited to welcome my colleague, Jan Combs, who is a former financial aid officer at Boston University and Harvard University, uh, and she's going to be talking to us about saving for college. Hi, Jan. Hi, Beth. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. It's lovely weather out, so I'm always happy when the sun is shining, and it is for sure shining today. Terrific. Um, Yes, so uh, one of the big things, myths, I don't know if it's a myth, but it's a complaint, I think would be a good way to put it, um, I hear at this time of year from parents is, um, we never should have saved for college, my friends who spend every dime that comes in the door got a great financial aid package, and we got nothing, and it's because we saved. So let's start with the big question, which is, does saving for college somehow hurt you in the financial aid process? So great question, and I have to say, I hear those complaints all the time, and I do think it is a myth, and I'm happy mm-hmm. to bust that myth today, <laughs> and I will say that in most cases, when you save for college, it will not impact your child's eligibility for financial aid. So when you apply for financial aid, you do complete 
certain financial aid applications, like the free application for federal student aid is one example. And families will be asked to give information about some of their savings that they have. They'll also be asked to give information about their income. So I will tell you, it really is an income-driven formula. That really has the largest impact on that EFC number, that expected family contribution number. It's primarily coming from income, not from savings. So savings really are very financial aid friendly. Um, Mm -hmm. Only about 5% of your reported assets are actually included in that EFC number. So it's absolutely much better to have money in the bank than not. Um, Just to reiterate that it really is, again, an income-driven formula. Assets are only accounting for a small percent um, in that financial aid formula. So it's very, uh, savings are financial aid friendly. So let's bust that myth right now as we go forward. All right. Consider it uh, busted. (laughs) Hopefully our (laughs) listeners are taking that to heart. Um, So then I guess the next question is that I have is, you know, is it, is it better to save than to borrow? Is there any um, benefit to borrowing instead of saving or is saving really the better option here? Sure. Well, I would say always, always, always you want to save as much as possible. Families, you know, as best they can, I know life happens, uh, Mm -hmm. but as best that they can to save because that's always going to outweigh all the benefits, certainly. Um, With regard to borrowing, I mean, certainly, you know, a reasonable amount of financing you know, through loans is often unavoidable for families. Now, it can be manageable for families to borrow, but certainly um, it, there's a huge expense when we borrow loans. Not only is there an interest rate you have to deal with, you have to deal with accruing interest if you're, you know, putting off payments of their loans, and there's oftentimes fees. So there's a huge cost of borrowing loans that sometimes families don't really have a complete, you know, handle on. So having money in the bank, being able to reduce your loan borrowing certainly outweighs all benefits. Absolutely. No doubt about that. Got it. So, all right, we've established that saving for college is a good thing. Um, what if you are, so at the, at, in the show's introduction, I was talking about the fact that often when people, a couple gets pregnant or um, has their first baby, they think and talk about, oh, we got to start saving for college. Mm-hmm. And then you don't, right? So <laughs> right. it just Life doesn't happens. happen. Life happens. You have to buy more diapers than you ever thought you could be possible. Um, I had a dream after my first, my first and only son was out of diapers that I was back at the Costco buying diapers again, and I woke up in a cold sweat because it was such a ridiculous, you know, money suck. Of course, right. that's just what a kid is in many ways. They take right. a lot of your money, um, <laughs> along with bringing lots of joy. But, yes. um, you know, what, uh, what about, what tips or suggestions or words of it's okay <laughs> do you have for, sure. for parents didn't start saving when their kids were born who maybe have kids in elementary school or middle school or even starting high school? Sure. Is it too late to start no. saving? No. 
What, what do you think about that? Great question. And I hear this a lot from just people in my community and friends as well, just, you know, talking, you know, commiserating about, oh, how do I save when there's all these other, you know, competing things that we need to pay for? And I will say it is absolutely never, ever, ever too late. So even if your kids are already in high school, there's a huge value of starting saving, even, you know, even as late as high school, even as late as senior year, for example. Let's say you're able to put aside $500 a month, even in senior year, well, that's going to give you over 6000 dollars um, just in that year. If you start as a freshman, when your child's a freshman in high school and you save $500 a month, that's going to equate to over $25,000 that you can save yeah. over their high school career. So certainly it can add up. And of course, the younger, you know, when your kids are younger, um, if you have the ability to start, of course, you've got time and um, compound interest and all of that on your mm-hmm. side. So the earlier, the better. But what Mm -hmm. I say to people is, do not beat yourself up. Do the best that you possibly can do. And as your kids get older, you know, maybe they're not in diapers anymore, as you say, or you're not paying high, you know, daycare costs or whatnot, or maybe you're not paying for piano lessons anymore or tutoring or whatever it is that we we as parents have to pay for. You know, we allocate that money into savings as you can. Uh, The best thing is to just make it automatic, even if you can only start with 25 or $50 a month, for example, have it come out of your paycheck or come out of your checking or savings account and go into a designated account that's for college savings specifically. So my best advice is do what you can do. Don't beat yourself up, but just start. And if you have to start small, that's perfectly fine. And then adjust as you can. Got it. Um, We've done a lot of different shows on things like um, you know, different vehicles for saving. And um, so I don't think we have to get into the nitty gritty details, but um, if you are going to be trying, you know, starting early or even if you're starting a little bit later, are there any particular vehicles like a 529 plan or something like that that you think can be very worthwhile um, for parents to access? Sure. I mean, and certainly there's a number of different savings vehicles that are available. And, and as you say, we've done past shows. We've gotten into the nitty-gritties of those. But certainly the 529 College Investment Plan is a very popular savings vehicle specific for college. Um, and it allows for a very um, small buy-in. You can usually get into those programs with as little as $25 a month as long as it's done automatically. Um, so there's that word automatic again, <laughs> you know, just mm-hmm. to get you started. But the 529 vehicle is definitely a great place to get started. Um, and if you want to learn more about that type of college-specific vehicle, you can go to savingforcollege.com. And that basically shows all of the different 529 college investment plans that we have in the country. Um, They're all state-sponsored. You can choose any states that you like, not just the one that you reside in. But that site, Saving for College, is a great place to get families started. Got it. Okay, great. What about um, any parents who are listening and saying, hey, this is all great. I really want my child to go to college, um, but I'm not planning on paying for it, and therefore I'm not going to save for it. Um, Any particular thoughts that you might have for those families? Sure. I mean, I guess I would just say, you know, one of the things that I know I want to do as a parent, I think a lot of people want to do as a parent, is we want to support our kids, of course, in, in, in a variety of ways. But one would be achieving, you know, financial independence as well. So I would guess I would just maybe rethink that a little bit. I mean, saving for education, you know, will help our kids not to take on so much loan debt. 
and then ultimately will set them up to achieve their own financial independency. I mean, we know we don't want them coming back after college and living in our basement. Mm-hmm. You know, we want them to go off into the world with their degree, get their own jobs, and be financially independent. And part of that is not having them borrow too much in loans that's unreasonable. So that mm-hmm. savings piece, you know, does come into play that, you know, help our kids um, become financial independent, you know, financially independent um, in the future. And bottom line is college is expensive and college tuition is rising. I don't think it's going to stop anytime soon. Um, so it is part, you know, part of the process is saving. Um, mm-hmm. So can't, can't well, recommend think- that enough. Yeah, I mean, and I, well, and I think a good point also to make is that unfortunately, the days where students could largely fund college on their own through, um, you know, a part-time job, mm-hmm. are falling by the wayside. And colleges, if a student's going to take a traditional path and go right from high school into college, the colleges are going to expect the parents to contribute, and there isn't really going to be a way around that, right? That is absolutely true. When you fill out that required financial aid paperwork, um, you are going to have that expected family contribution, and it's called family contribution for a reason. They're expecting both parent and student involvement, you know, in funding that education. So um, you'll be expected to contribute, so it makes sense just to have some sort of money in the bank to help uh, with the cost of college. Absolutely. Um, Other other things, um, you know, one of the things that you were mentioning to me is just, you know, are you saving for, is there a challenge if you put money in your child's name? Is that a good idea, a bad idea? You know, maybe you have three kids and you're going to open up three different savings account and put them all in their each name. Is that something you would advise or not? Sure. So great question. So Earlier in our segment, I mentioned how saving in the parent's name, parent assets, it's very financial aid friendly, and that is the case. When students actually have large amounts of assets, it's actually not financial aid friendly. It's actually a much larger contribution, about 20%, that comes out of student assets to be used for the college education versus that 5% from parental assets. So it's it's a much better scenario for parents to have money saved in their own name versus having it saved in their children's names. Got it. And, um, you know, we did mention 529s, and you gave that great resource of places to go. Um, What if you have three kids and you think, you know, one of them might go to college, another one might go into the military, um, but you want to have savings because you want, you're going to, your plan is to sort of give the same child the same, each child the same amount of money to Mm -hmm. be used either for college or maybe to buy a first house or whatever it's going to be. Any, um, any advice there around how you choose to save? Sure. I mean, I think that's a very personal decision as to where you're going to end up putting your money as far as, and certainly we know our kids can take many different paths, whether they go to college or military or work or whatever it is. Um, in the 529 specifically, there is a clause that allows you to change the beneficiary if your child doesn't end up needing the money. So if you had a 529 plan for, say, each of the three children, one decides to go into the military, well, you can change the beneficiary on that child's account so that it can be used by some 
somebody else. So that's a, the beauty of the 529. Um, you can also just use regular taxable savings accounts if you don't want to worry about all of the different rules related to some of those college-specific accounts. So you can use money market accounts. You can use certificate of deposits. You can use mutual fund accounts whereby those can be designated for different children and they don't have all the rules attached to them that those college-specific ones do. So for the kid who goes into the military or the one who ends up going right into the workforce or chooses a different path or goes backpacking in Europe, whatever it is, um, you know, it has less restrictions on those types. So lots of different options available. Um, Certainly the site investor.gov has a lot of great information about, you know, general information about investing in general, which might give some families some ideas as well about the different savings vehicles that are available. All right. Jan, I so appreciate uh, you joining today, and I just want to say one more time to our listeners, saving is good. Saving is <laughs> saving never is bad. Great. <laughs> saving is great. It is never bad. Um, it is so never thanks bad. Again. Thanks again for being with us today. All right. You have a wonderful day. Okay. Well, I want to thank Jan and all of my guests um, for joining me today. Next week, my fabulous colleague Sally Ganga is going to be hosting. Um, We just talked about the importance of saving for college. Well, we're going to do a follow-up segment to that around how much should I save for college? And isn't that the question of the hour or of the decade or of your lifetime? Um, We're also going to be looking into general services that are available for students with learning differences, so services on the college level. Um, And we're also going to talk about one of my very favorite topics. I'm kind of jealous that Sally's getting to do it. Uh, And that is questions you do not want to ask your admissions officer. Uh, So she is going to talk through that in our office hours segment next week. Um, We are always looking and interested in your questions. Uh, So send them to us, gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. One big question I have for you all this week is, what do you think? about as we go into the summer, especially um, those of you who are going into your senior year and really in the thick of the college process, um, we're going to be revisiting the uh, segments that we did last summer around college admissions and and giving students homework and advice about, okay, here's what you should be working on now. So I'd love to hear from you about um, the big questions that you have related especially to the application process. Um, I just am about to, um, or I recently posted another in my Huffington Post series around evaluating your chances of getting into an Ivy. Uh, so you might want to check that out. If you Google Huffington Post and Elizabeth Heaton, you should find that with no problem. Um, our archives of this show have lots of great information, so you want to check that out. Um, we also have a really great blog, an updated website, getintocollege.com. We're on Pinterest. We're on LinkedIn. Check us out. Sign up for free downloads on iTunes. Um, and don't forget, we're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Good week.